0: There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away man has a dream and that's the start
1: He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true
0: for you and me so there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day there's a great big beautiful tomorrow just a dream away hello and welcome to dream with mind and heart every disney movie ever i'm ryan silberstein and with me is my co-host
1: Megan bojarski
0: and in this episode, we take a little bit of a break from our Disney history, or, or maybe not a break so much as a jump forward in time, a, a sort of a, a break between seasons. Uh, Megan suggested that I go back and watch the 2011 pilot for the ABC series Once Upon a Time. So Megan, do you want to give a little bit of introduction as to why you asked me to watch this show?
1: Sure. So Once Upon a Time is a very kind of interesting thing, copyright wise, because they're actually affiliated with Disney, but it isn't a Disney show. And so as we were working our way through these first few Disney films, I was going, you know, all I think about is how other representations have done it, in part because I wasn't as much of a Disney kid as you were. So I think it's just really interesting to look at a show that predominantly revolves around the story of Snow White, in contrast to what we saw with the original Disney version, and then see how it went on to include characters from Pinocchio, Fantasia, the Silly Symphony, the Big Bad Wolf, as well as many other films that we haven't gotten to yet. So the show just really kind of balances the classic fairy tale and modern sentiments and the magic of Disney in this way that makes it kind of an important air text for us to talk about alongside these first few films
0: yeah i think that makes sense i was certainly aware of the show when it when it was airing like i remember it was sort of made a big splash and then i was already sort of i've I've never been a huge tv watcher at least in the last you know since i started college in like 2004 my tv watching has sort of steadily declined with occasional pop-ups where i find a show that i really key into but this was a time where i wasn't watching a lot of tv so like i was interested in the show just because of the concept and i thought it looked interesting but i i you know and my schedule was wonky enough where you know before streaming keeping up with like a regular weekly network show that was doing a bunch of episodes every season was a lot to try to keep up with and in the years since i've totally got it crossed in my mind with I think the Disney Channel show, The Descendants, which is sort of, I feel like like a YA, similar concept, but more directly Disney con- uh, show.
1: Yeah, we might need to uh, talk about Descendants once we get to like Sleeping Beauty era, because I definitely ended up checking in on all of that. We've talked before that you have kind of the Disney background. I did everything fairy tales except Disney. So I know all of these adaptations really well. And I think we talk about adaptation a lot with Cinderella because there's a million teen movies of Cinderella. But Once Upon a Time was just such an interesting entry because in many ways the show revolved around Snow White in contrast to what we were saying in our Snow White podcast that Disney has kind of tried their best not to adapt Snow White to death not counting the 2024 live action film that's currently in production. So I just think it's kind of this interesting, not quite Disney story, but close enough that it kind of plays against these ideas in new and interesting ways.
0: As one of our our regular segments shows, Legacy is a huge part of the Disney company. And, you know, I went to that Disney 100 exhibit since we I think since we last recorded time is has no meaning <laughs> you know that whole exhibit I mean literally because it's, it's the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Disney studio that exhibit is all about legacy and sort of you can see the way that that exhibit is presented where they go back to the old stuff but they mix in the new stuff at the same time that they're putting Ariel and Moana and Tiana alongside Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and they really are sort of you know, synthesizing their whole history. You can be cynical or not about it, but certainly as a way to tie in their progress in terms of diversity, as well as just tying the entire legacy of the company together. Just the way that they sort of reuse their intellectual property over time. So, you know, there's things about the Pirates of the Caribbean movies in that exhibit, and there are other things that call forward where Disney is sort of revisiting their own concepts. We're getting a second chance at a Haunted Mansion movie later this summer as I was reminded when I was looking at the list of what's coming out this year. So, you know, I think the way that Disney talks about its legacy, the way that they revisit some of these stories and some of these characters over and over. And again, this is an ABC show. It's not directly Disney, but for all intents and purposes, it's Disney. Disney owns ABC. Bob Iger came up through ABC. So it's very much a part of their overall brand. And, you know, there's so much of like, even growing up, like, I, I always associate ABC with Disney because they did those directed-to-TV Sunday night movies, you know, which were, I feel like, a precursor to the Disney Channel original movie, but, like, they were before that, but they were, I think, more, less at the tween audience and more at a broader audience, which is why we got one about Tony Danza playing football for the Eagles. <laughs> like, And so, you know, I, I think this is very much in the Disney umbrella while also being very much in ABC shows in ways that I'm looking forward to talking about.
1: Part of that is just kind of a legal thing. Like you said, Disney does own ABC, but this show specifically had special legal connections to Disney. At the same time, they had shows like Grimm coming out. I know that there's Ever After High, All sorts of kind of from kid to adult versions of playing with these same stories. And nobody except Once Upon a Time had the rights to Disney specific content, which is something that the series did a lot with, especially in later seasons that we won't be talking about today. But there's just such a kind of interesting interplay with that in how they kind of mock their legacy while also very much building it up i thought it just really needed to be kind of brought into our discussion of disney and where they went with things
0: can you remind me and also our listeners how how long you watched the show for because for this i watched the first the first two episodes of the first season but obviously due to time that's as far as i could really get to but i felt like i got enough to at least you know talk about the origins of the show (laughs) with intelligence
1: So Once Upon a Time ran from October 23rd, 2011 to May 18th, 2018. It had seven seasons, 155 episodes, and I watched probably 150 of those. I started watching it from the get-go. I got very kind of invested in the fandom for the first few years. It went downhill in the later seasons, so I had stopped watching in season six. And then they announced that there was going to be a musical episode. I, for one thing, I have another podcast about musical episodes of TV shows. So you can see my connection there. But I just knew they were going to play with Disney and the idea of the singing princess. So I actually didn't get fully caught up, but I got mostly caught up for that. And then I watched the final season. So I've watched nearly all of the show. I've rewatched the first few seasons multiple times, so a lot of times, especially as we're going to go through some of these lesser known movies, I will probably say things like, oh my god, I didn't know that was a Disney movie, (laughs) because it was referenced in the show at some point along the 155 episodes.
0: I'm looking forward to this being a sort of recurring topic of like Megan's Once Upon a Time Corner. <laughs> you know and and I hope that we have listeners out there who have also watched the show and one will be amused by my very naive takes on the first two episodes and two appreciate your depth of knowledge it'll be cool to see how it how it's shaped your impression of the other disney things that you haven't had first hand knowledge of so far.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is a big flip from our usual dynamic where <laughs> you like know and love the movies and I'm like I am aware that that movie existed and that's about it. So it should be a lot of fun. I have added a little bit of information for this episode for our listeners who are not familiar with the show or aren't extremely familiar with it, just so that you all know kind of what we're talking about here and can just get a better idea of it. So a little synopsis that I wrote up. So the characters from famous fairy tales live in the Enchanted Forest, essentially a fairy tale medieval-ish world, but the evil queen will stop at nothing to ruin Snow White's happiness. In the process, she casts a curse that sends all of the fairy tale characters, or at least most of them, into the real world, where they live in a mostly frozen-in-time 80s-based small town in Maine, for 28 years until Snow White and Prince Charming's daughter, raised as an orphan in the real world, arrives in town. Only she has the ability to save the town and break the curse, but only if her 10-year-old son, Henry, who was coincidentally adopted by the evil queen, can make her believe that magic and fairy tales are real. And if that sounds super convoluted, that is the least convoluted thing about this show. If if anybody is on TikTok, there's a fun kind of revival of fandom interest with people just going, what is this show and it's nonsense? I saw a video the other day that was talking about in a later season, Anna from Frozen taught Prince Charming how to sword fight in order to stop the evil overlord Bo Peep So this show goes wildly (laughs) off the rails in later seasons. But broadly speaking, it kind of has these key themes of hope, redemption, how villains are made, and then especially family, and how that kind of is navigated between birth family, adoptive family, love connections, and then found family. And that kind of plays out through these kind of parallel scenes of the fairy tales taking place in the enchanted forest. And then these characters in the real world, trying to figure out like modern morality, that makes kind of this interesting play by play, where we see on one side kind of, ah, yes, there's good and evil. And it's these stories we all know. And on the other side, it's, okay, um, what do we do when Someone is genuinely a fantastic mother, but also is evil and genocidal. Like, is it okay for her son to still love her? And a lot of other kind of complex situations. Just briefly touching on the history of the show, it was run by showrunners Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis, who were actually kind of major driving forces in the show Lost. They came up with the idea for the show in 2004, Before they were on Lost, fun fact, if you love Lost, about half the cast of Once Upon a Time is from Lost, so you'll see some familiar faces. But they wanted to wait until that series was over to focus in on it. Horowitz has said that essentially they wanted to approach each character by asking, how do we make these icons real, make them relatable? And I think that kind of touches back on all of the legacy work we've done with all of the movies up till now. We talk about how could the characters be more relatable? How could they fit our modern uh, sensibilities better? And that's something that I think was a really driving motivator in how this show was created.
0: Without going too much into my overall reaction to the show, one of my initial notes while watching was, oh, this is a very Lost show because I did watch Lost off and on i I watched the finale live i sort of watched the show in fits and starts based on availability and uh and all that kind of thing but i was i was an an og losty and Mm -hmm. just the production value (laughs) was that sort of very glossy high-end but still network tv budget so Mm -hmm. like it it fits right in with lost and even just the way that the scenes are sort of written like the pacing of the show It felt like more like Lost than anything I've ever actually watched uh, since (laughs) Lost, in terms of, again, just the overall vibe of it and the way that they were sort of unfurling the stories and then the cross cutting obviously was also a huge part of Lost. Every season they would be either doing, you know, some kind of character flashback or there was a season where it was a, you know, alternate universe sort of sideways thing. And so there was a lot. There's a lot of Lost DNA. Even that's very evident, even from these first two episodes.
1: Those are major connections. They get more prominent as you go. Like I said, the cast is a huge Lost crossover, and especially as we go into the later seasons. But one of the things that I love this show, I I will always love this show, but it and Lost also unfortunately had the really intriguing well sketched out first few seasons before just going absolutely off the rail in the end as they tried to come up with even more bizarre plot twists to throw into it uh so i think that that's definitely kind of a vibe that transferred into this show as well
0: and lost for me i'm a person who will happily defend the lost finale anytime But that show did lose its way, especially in the middle. Like that third season, after they sort of entered, without getting too deep into it. But like once they introduced <laughs> the the others and the people on the other side of the island, and they had all these new characters, and they didn't really know what they were doing. And then at some point during that season, I think they sat down with ABC and were like, "Okay, how much longer are we going to run? Because that will tell us how to fit, how to you know, structure the rest of the show." And they finally were able to get ABC to commit to okay, we're going to do six seasons, and this, this is the amount of episodes that you have. And and, and then I feel like it's, it, not that it's perfect from then on, but it starts to get, get back on the rails more often than not.
1: <laughs> I am a defender of the seventh season of Once Upon a Time, which was like a soft reboot of the show, which many people hated, controversial. Uh, but I definitely think that lost DNA can be seen in kind of the losing the way and and finding it again. So Lost is a huge connector here. There's other kind of possible inspirations and predecessors, one of which I knew about and the other one I am desperate to see now. So the general premise of importing the Snow White characters into the real world was previously seen on another ABC television show, the 1980s comedy sitcom The Charmings, which I have never heard of, but now deeply need to see. I I read some synopses and it sounds so horrible in the best, most delightful way. And one of the other kind of inspirations that people connect with is that it has a very similar premise to Bill Willingham's comic series Fables, which ABC bought the rights to in 2008, but didn't fully develop. So I believe that you mentioned that you had some experience with fables, and I'm just kind of curious how well you see that connection here.
0: I'll talk about that more in just a second, but I just opened the Wikipedia article for the Charmings because I had to, and (laughs) they named Snow White's evil stepmother Lillian, which... Mm -hmm. Like, ABC, I don't think was owned by Disney at this time, but the fact that they name Snow White's evil stepmother the same first name as Walt Disney's wife is bizarre.
1: This is one thing I find hilarious that, like, every adaptation seems to have universally uh, rejected Disney's official name for the evil queen, which is like from Hilda or something. But I just looked it up Lillian means purity. So that seems really weird, at least in Once Upon a Time. And I've written about this, so go to my Twitter page, and I'm sure I've posted about it. The names are super transparent on Once Upon a Time. So the evil queen's name there is Regina, which is literally just Latin for queen. And that is not hidden. They say that in season two of the show. So that at least makes sense to me instead of, you know, slandering Walt's uh, family members.
0: That is absolutely wild, and again, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it is absolutely bizarre. But yeah, Fables, I'm, I'm a big comic book reader, um, and I try to expand beyond <laughs> just superhero comics when I can. And Fables is actually from DC Comics' Vertigo imprint, which is their sort of more adult-tinged comics. Again, generally not superheroes. Uh, it started in the summer of 2002, and so I jumped into it. Probably I'm looking at the like collections and trying to remember when they were coming out. But I, I came into it relatively. I don't want to say early, but you know, within the first I don't know three or four years of it, probably I, I was at least aware of it. And because DC is owned by Warner Brothers and has been for a long time, the main characters are all based on the sort of public the, the public domain versions of these characters. Uh, And so the main character is the Big Bad Wolf, uh, who has renamed himself as Bigby. And he and the other fable characters are generally from European stories, with some notable exceptions. And they have been exiled to a magical neighborhood inside New York City. So sort of like a Chinatown that is invisible to normal humans, because they've been exiled by the... I'm trying to remember what the name of the... Because I, I don't want, there's a, there's a, the villain's true identity is a secret. At least the the villain of the first, you know, major arc of the series. I, I think he's just called the Adversary. So I won't, I won't spoil who that is because it is a well-known character and there's a big twist that works very well uh, if you're reading and you don't know. And... Uh, Bigby is sort of the the, sh- the sheriff the main cop he, he's kind of written as a detective you know and he solves murders and it spins more and more into different flashbacks and bring in other characters so the at the beginning he the first story arc is uh, Bigby investigating the murder of Rose Red Snow White's sister there's a lot of strife in the comic between Uh, characters like Rose Red and Snow White who at the very least appear human even if they're magical and they can sort of go out into the real world and you know and and other characters like you know Bigby and some others who are who, who you know Humpty Dumpty it would it would shock people if they saw a giant Eggman walking down the street and it would sort of blow their cover and make them vulnerable you know and then there's there's flashbacks that takes place throughout history. So there's a whole arc where you find out what the Big Bad Wolf was doing during World War II. You know, Cinderella is... Uh, uh, everyone thinks she is, like, completely frivolous and an airhead who just enjoys shopping. And it's revealed that she's actually a spy. There, there's a bunch of different sort of... It's a very expansive story that I've read about half of with a couple of the major spinoffs. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. I think uh, if I'm right about the... Cop that we see in the first episode of the show, if he is a wolf, then that's probably the most direct connection to Fables that ABC was developing. But it, it sort of felt like they had they had bought the rights to Fables. I believe that, uh, at least according to them, Horowitz and Kit, Kit, Kitsis said they were not aware of Fables when they came up with their idea. Which I I I'm going to believe them at face value, and there's enough differences even in just the pilot and my memory of reading fables, you know, ten years ago, that I don't think they stole anything because it is beyond the there's fairy tale characters in the real world. There's not actually a lot in common with where the premise goes from there, and I still think as much as I would love to see a screen adaptation of fables. The way that that story is structured works best in comics because it can go all over the place and introduce a huge cast of characters. And, you know, they don't have to worry about budget because it's just how well can they draw it?
1: (laughs) That's the whole, you know, live action versus animation struggle that Disney goes through. Like, it's cheaper to film it unless you want to do magic, in which case it's much cheaper to just draw it in the background. That's really interesting. I've read a couple kind of synopses of it but i haven't gone too deep into it i think that might have been where they were going with the sheriff in a pilot i will say i re-watched it and realized that there's a couple of points that don't make any sense with where the show actually goes uh so you can definitely see that production change from like here's our original idea to where it kind of got fleshed out will say there is more to the sheriff than meets the eye but the wolf is never really explained in as much depth as it should be
0: that's i mean weirdly that's one of the things i like about tv especially watching pilots where you're like okay like this is the concept for the show and you know this also just comes at a really interesting point in tv history where you know lost sort of signifies this shift from Like the network's really starting to embrace serialized uh, storytelling versus, you know, the more like obviously at this time, you know, CSI, Law and Order, all those shows are huge hits where they're still doing case of the week stuff. But I feel like Lost was one of the first, if not the first major show that was driven to success and huge ratings because it was serialized. You know, I mean, there's obviously things that have come before it, like Twin Peaks and, and other stuff like that, but not to the degree of serialization and to the to the degree of success with Lost, where they really sort of embraced, look, if you missed an episode, you missed some major stuff. <laughs> and, you know, if it comes around again, we might do a previously on, but that's the most you're going to get. We're assuming that you're going to watch it and I feel like this was the time where they were starting to do the thing of like if you go to abc.com you can watch the most recent three episodes and so like they're trying to help people not fall behind but it's not quite to the age of you know Netflix where it's like here's all the episodes at once and you can watch at your own pace.
1: For the first season there is kind of a like not monster of the week but very episodic uh structure more or less every episode of season 1 introduces a new fairy tale character story. After that, it gets very very long form. I remember there was a storm while one episode of the 3rd season was taping for me and I just missed a huge part of it just because like I missed 20 minutes of one episode. But it definitely does lean into that like long form story structure which means that I'm a little sorry that you only got to see the first two episodes because there is just so much going on in this first season. I think that kind of brings us to the point where I just kind of want to know what you thought. We're going to talk a little bit more later about specifically how it connects to to Snow White and to Disney, but just broadly speaking, what did you think about the show?
0: I enjoyed the first two episodes. I will say centering the first two episodes at least the first two episodes around a child actor is a bold and brave choice (laughs) (laughs) because you know we meet this woman and she's like on a date and uh, and I was like okay they're giving us the backstory where he's like you're an orphan without any friends which I think is a weird thing to point out to somebody when you're uh, on a first date with them but you know we'll go with Mm -hmm. it and then you know she makes a wish this kid just like randomly shows up and he's like hi, mom. Like, I'm your son. Remember that you ad- you gave a kid up for adoption 10 years ago? In the sense that I struggle with child actors <laughs> in general. And the way this kid is written is exceptionally precocious. And he is delivering a lot of exposition. And it, it's not the actor's fault. This is just a general thing I have about kid actors and performances. I think he does uh, the best job that could be expected out of him at that age. And so, you know, I, I'm sort of going with the story. I know... At least I know Jennifer Goodwin and so like I'm sort of waiting for her to show up and then connected with all of the actual fairy tale stuff. I thought it was really fun. I really like that even from the beginning. I don't know offhand if the Glass Coffin is a, a Disney Snow White adaptation choice that they're bringing back or if that is in any other older versions of the story I like that not only do we see it but also you know Snow like references it like once I was like I thought I was like a Connor in this class coffin and so there's a playfulness early on that I I appreciated because as much fun as it can be to take fairy tales seriously like I I enjoy at least the first Snow White and the Huntsman movie I know I saw the second one but I really don't remember it all that well <laughs> I think it is just as fun to sort of be a little playful with it without being over the top and sort of undermining the stories themselves. And I like that it was a continuation. I like that, you know, unlike the Disney animated version, we saw Snow White and I think he's Prince Charming in this, but in the Disney Mm -hmm. version, he is just the prince because Prince Charming is Cinderella's boy.
1: Um. But they talk about that later. Okay, There's a whole conversation (laughs) in like season four about the fact that nobody knows his name he has like six different names but none of them basically all of them are nicknames so nobody really knows his name yeah snow just called him charming and that's why he's called that gotcha (laughs) they they definitely negotiate the fact that this character legitimately has no real name in in the Disney version
0: but I like that we got to see the wedding I like that the dwarves are there which is you know again one of the criticisms that we had about the animated version is that at the end of that movie the dwarves are just kind of being like goodbye like as they as you know the two ride off together so I I appreciated sort of that follow-up I like the overall aesthetic of the fairy tale world. I like that it was colorful, but not overly... Co- like, it wasn't cartoonishly colorful, but it wasn't drab either. Mm-hmm. Like, the dwarfs all had costumes that sort of resemble... Like, you could see where the inspiration came from with the Disney animated costumes, you know. But it, it's not like she was wearing the snow white dress at any point. And so I, I thought it 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 found a good line to walk in terms of bringing in the iconography that's familiar to everybody not overly winking about it but not underplaying it either mm-hmm. i talked i thought a lot about lost uh, honestly because obviously even though you know emma doesn't wake up on an island she basically comes to this small town in maine and is meeting a lot of new people and you know she's our point of view character at least for the first uh the, f- the first two episodes and so I was. It was interesting to see at what speed they were doling out who is who. Um, so like, you know, there's a uh, there's a granny, but we don't know like which granny she is necessarily. Mm-hmm. But we know right away that Henry, the, the the boy, his therapist is Jiminy Cricket. Like that's pretty apparent right away, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was just interesting to see of how much of this, how much are they going to mystery things, and how much are they just going to tell us up front who these people are, whether through voices or seeing the same actor playing the same parts. And I think that's more fun than trying to tease out all of it. And then it was also really fun to see Juan Carlos Esposito show up as the magic mirror, in part because as we're recording this, the season finale of Ma- Mandalorian season three just wrapped. Uh, it, so I've seen a lot of Juan Carlos Esposito recently. He is just a phenomenal actor. Like he's one of those people you can drop into almost anything. And he can add either a menacing tone. Like he can kind of hit whatever beat you need him to hit. And so he was, I think, just the cast member that jumped out at me. Because I'm most familiar with him of anybody in this cast. At least right away. And then the one big problem. If I ever, I promise, if I ever end up as like a showrunner or producer or whatever. On some, one of these big budget fantasy shows. I am going to divert as much money as possible into wigs because <laughs> this show Game of Thrones there are so many of these like high budget fantasy shows that I've seen I'll, I'll throw in the, I'll throw in sci-fi also that just have they must have zero wig budget the wigs just look terrible and, like, I don't even think it's like one of these, you know, like an HD thing when you go back and watch like an old, older show that, you know, would have been broadcast before everybody had high def televisions, where, like, oh, yeah, you couldn't really tell how bad the wig was because you couldn't really see it as well. No, there's no excuse. But that is my promise, that if I ever run one of these shows, the wig budget is going to get severely, like, they're going to get as much money as I can divert to them, because (laughs) clearly nobody else is paying attention.
1: (laughs) That's funny. I never made that connection before. talk more later about the reception, but by and large, like, the physical appearances of the actors is the thing that this show got praised for the most, and I have never looked at this as a show that, like, horrifically butchers its wigs. I mean, there's there's the infamous wig in the finale of Supernatural. There's an infamous wig in the finale of The Vampire Diaries, so I'm aware of them, but I I'm, I personally didn't have a problem with any of these characters' wigs.
0: I'm just saying that the wigs are par for the course, but, but that needs to be raised. That's all I'm saying, is that the wigs were passable, but like gen- the the snow white hair i think is probably probably the one that jumped out the most to me although the evil queen in her in the uh fairy tale side of things was a little was a little close also i've, I've seen worse but it, w- it just jumped out at me that like the rest of if anything i think it says that the rest of the production looks so good that i was like man they could have just spent a little bit more time or money on these wings <laughs> but but
1: That's fair because there are other times where so much of it looks really good and then they really wanted to put something like big and crazy in there and it looks so cartoony because everything else is so well grounded and then you just have like, you know, Chernabog shows up later on and does not fit. Uh, It just is such a weird contrast with the kind of the grounded fairy tale aesthetic. Of everything else. Uh, So that's fair. So much of it is good that the bad things definitely stand out.
0: I will say, I think Jiminy Cricket looks great. And, you know, I can understand being like, if we only have, you know, so much money, we have to make sure that this important character looks good at all times. You know, again, I'm not saying that the wigs were awful. I'm just saying it jumped out at me that everything else looked really good. And that was the one part where I was like, Oh, you really just kind of didn't quite get there with the wigs. But again, if Game of Thrones has this problem, you know, you're you're playing on the same turf as that show, which has a much, much bigger budget. And so but again, like seeing seeing Jiminy Cricket in the in his fairy tale form, I'll say I was really impressed for, you know. 2011 network television budget like Mm -hmm. all that all that stuff looks really good and the sets and costumes and all that kind of stuff it it wasn't like oh every scene takes place in like the middle of the woods or like you know it it didn't have the it clearly had more money than like a cw show like i've only ever seen a couple episodes of like supernatural but it you know it, it doesn't have that same sort of you know, everything is being filmed outside in Vancouver, outside of Vancouver somewhere look that a lot of these shows have.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of the visual world building is a real high spot for this show in a lot of ways. Like, Storybrook as a town is a very grounded place. Mm-hmm. The Enchanted Forest, it depends on what part of it they're at, but at least kind of the the Queen's Castle and Snow White's Castle and, like, a couple of other major locations are very well built there are certain points where they're just running through the woods non-stop but you know part of that is just fairy tales they just live in the woods a lot
0: yeah and i mean i would say it's about on par with uh the magicians i guess is the, is the closest mm. comparison i would have where especially you know once we get into later seasons of that show, it doesn't make any sense that the characters are in the same place that they were before, but you're like, well, they had this set and they probably, you know, saved a bunch of money by just redressing it a little bit and reusing the location versus trying to build a whole new set that would have looked dramatically worse. So like, I'm very, one of the things I find most interesting about television is that actual, like every episode has a budget, but you can kind of, you know, put more, but more into one and and pick it up later. And, I find all that stuff really interesting so I do actually sort of pay attention to it but I will say overall I enjoyed these first two episodes a lot. I don't know if I'm going to continue just because I have a few other things that I am watching at this time and there are a lot of episodes but it's my if I don't continue it's not it's not about the quality of the show just more about me as a person and the time that I have to spend. (laughs)
1: It's so easy to get sucked back into rewatching this show for me. I never really get past season four, which is the point that I see as kind of the downfall of the show. So like you said, in the beginning, it has this great navigation of like, how can we acknowledge that this is absolutely the Disney versions of these characters without being too overt? Spoiler alert, season four is when they bring in Frozen. And the movie had only been out for a couple of years at that point. So it was very apparent that this was not like the plan all along. This was, oh, this movie made a lot of money. Let's try and steal some of that. So there's there's kind of that negotiation of how how far is too far. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think at some point in the first episode, Grumpy whistles like the dwarves song from yes. Snow White, which is kind of perfect. But then in a later season, there's a Beauty and the Beast scene where they literally are put in the exact same costumes and dance to like Tail as Oldest as Time. And that's fine. Like it's cute, but it it goes a little too far on that side of it, uh, to to my
0: Yeah, I mean, directionally I would agree with you that the the balance to strike is referencing Disney things but not remaking Disney things so obviously like that is a scene that has to be in the was it 2014 or whatever live action Beauty and the Beast remake that's fairly horrific but like that scene has to be there because that's the movie that they're remaking but it doesn't really I would agree with you that doesn't belong in this show because the show should be finding its own path and again putting in references and nods to things but but sort of advancing it along because you know it, in my mind just from what i've picked up on all of the stuff in the in storybrook is the the quote unquote present day and so all of those fairy tale things in theory would have happened before the show starts at least that's the like the impression that the setup gave me
1: yeah, by and large, it gets complicated in the later seasons where essentially they establish that there are multiple versions of the same story that start and stop constantly. For instance, I think we discussed before we decided to do this that there's a Cinderella in, I think, season two, and then Cinderella is a main character in season seven, but they're different Cinderellos. Sorry, there's a Cinderella in season one. There's a Rapunzel in season two. That is then in the finale. So they they get convoluted with that.
0: Oh, I was say the, the other thing I, I noticed is that you know they introduce Stiltskin, who is not a Disney character, and I, that's a story that Disney has never really done. And then I, in, I didn't get a chance to look it up because I was like, this is going to get it's just going to get me confused. But I. Feel like there's a version of Sleeping Beauty that Rumple Silskin is the one with the spinning wheel, and no, no, wait, no. Rumple has the princess or whoever. It's the spinning wheel. The spinning wheels in both. Mm. That's why I get them. That's why I associate the two together. Because in the Rumple Silskin story, he helps her spin straw into gold, and then Sleeping Beauty pricks herself on a cursed spinning wheel. Right. Okay. Got it. Sorry. I I that it's the spinning wheel thing. The that, that the the fact that it's a central thing in both stories sometimes has me get them uh conflated.
1: Rumpelstiltskin Stiltskin has always been my favorite fairy tale. I like the very gray morality of it. Like we cheer for the queen to not have to give up her baby, but like it's kind of like the Ursa Ursula apologists. Like she made a deal and she knew what she was doing here. Like, uh, Rumpelstiltskin held up his end of the deal in the original story. Why are we blaming him?
0: I will just say, because we're not going to get there for a while, that I don't think a contract with a 16-year-old is enforceable under law. And so Ursula, still in the wrong contract, null and void. But, you know, that's that's a discussion for another time.
1: (laughs) I'm not saying that Ursula should be, but, you know... And and the argument would be that, you know, the Miller's daughter doesn't have a choice. It's death or agree to this. Yeah, that's kind of the, the really interesting thing to me about Once Upon a Time and its relationship with Disney that I can kind of expound on in a minute. In this first season, at least, the key stories are Snow White, Pinocchio to some extent, Little Red Riding Hood. So that's where Granny and the random girl with red hair comes from. That gets expanded on. And then Rumpelstiltskin. And other stories, they weave in basically everything. Rumpelstiltskin, like you said, is not in Disney. At this moment in time, DreamWorks had just put out Shrek Forever After. That was 2010. So there was some Rumpelstiltskin visibility from that. Also, there were rumors of a Rumpelstiltskin movie in production, but then that somehow turned out to be Moana. I'm not sure how they got those <laughs> crossed, but that is kind of an interesting place where, and I will say that some characters have multiple roles, so Rumpelstiltskin ends up playing the roles of about five or six different Disney characters, but he is the originality of the show. Everything else has these kind of rich... Disney legacies to work off of and so Rumpelstiltskin can, can really be anything and anybody which I think was really smart because you have that balance of the core story which really is Snow White and then Rumpelstiltskin which is so detached from all of it.
0: Even the impression that I got from these first two episodes is that he's also sort of in that morally gray area too, which, which makes it fun because we, you know, we said the evil queen is obviously evil and snow white is good. And then he's sort of helping them try to escape, but then he's also working with the queen and he's part of the whole, like he's at least the way that I understood the second episode. He's aware. uh, He's aware that this curse is going to happen and sort of wants to just be like, Look in this new world. Just like set me up on easy streak, and like I'm not going to get in your way. And but it was unclear to me if he remembers the fairy tale world or not.
1: So that's convoluted. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say spoiler alert. So in the first episode, he asks Snow and Charming what their baby's name is going to be, and they say Emma. So when he hears Emma's name at the inn at the end of the first episode that's when he remembers. Gotcha. So the previous 28 years, he was as cursed as everybody else. But once he heard her name, he and then the evil queen are the only ones in Storybrooke who know what's actually going on. So he, he has a little bit of both. He does have his cursed identity, but throughout most of the show, he definitely knows who he is and uh, how to manipulate people. He's, he's very good at that.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that's fun. And I'm glad I wasn't totally wrong on on misreading that.
1: No, it's, um, a lot of things were left very ambiguous in the first season. I will say that Rumpelstiltskin is centered in the second season more than the first season. The first season is really the evil queen's story. If we're going by villains, Once Upon a Time is definitely a show for villain apologists. So a lot of times we kind of gauge it by their narratives. Um, And we find out why he's connected to the curse and how he has power and why he helps the heroes sometimes and the villains, others. He has a lot of depth. Uh, We find out he's literally hundreds of years old. So you get a lot of backstory for him the more we go on, which makes it easy to drag in other characters because, you know, he had a long enough life to run into literally any Disney character or otherwise. They get into gothic literature uh, in later seasons, so we we get Frankenstein, we get Jekyll and Hyde, don't get Dracula, so excluding some of the weirdness of that, he really does have a chance to kind of meet anybody you could want to drag into the story.
0: I love Frankenstein, just in almost any incarnation, and so... Of weirdly, of anything, that piece of information makes me vastly more interested in trying to watch the rest of the show.
1: <laughs> well, good news for you. You really only need to watch season two to to get Frankenstein's story, because David Anders was the actor for that, and then he got a gig on iZombie. So he kind of uh moves away from Once Upon a Time when he got that role. You only have to go through the first two seasons if you want that element to it, which is the best seasons. In my opinion, season two is really where the show just hits all the right notes, at least the first half of season two. So then you could watch, you know, less than 155 episodes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's an intimidating number.
1: It is. I will say that after season one, every season is two mini seasons. So it's a lot easier to kind of chunk it out. Because there's basically a new arc every 12 episodes, which is a lot more manageable.
0: Yeah, no, that, is, that sounds a lot more manageable. And I think that's also really smart because where a lot of these shows that are serialized but still have to fill out a whole uh, network TV season order, I think where they get tripped up is trying to like, okay, we're going to tell one big story this season, but we have to do it in like 25 episodes. I mean... You know that stuff happens with like the Arrow and the Flash and and all those CW superhero shows try to tease out a villain over and so there's like, you know, half the episodes have nothing to do with it or, you know, they'll just like cut to the villain doing a thing for five minutes at the end of an episode that is otherwise completely disconnected and it's like this didn't need to be here, <laughs> so sort of sp- speeding up that way I think makes sense.
1: Uh, I think in this one thing I will say is the notion of. Who a villain is and what their morality is gets very complicated as the show goes on in a good way most of the time. Basically, every character, we see why they are the way they are. We see what it would take for them to change. And that's kind of one of the great strengths of the show. But they also have, and this is one of my favorite moves they did in a not very good season, they do admit that Cruella Deville is just a sociopath they don't try to go the way of the live action and be like, ah, her mother was killed by Dalmatians, which makes total sense, naturally.
0: I really, for whatever reason, I have a really soft spot for that Corella movie, and her mom being killed by Dalmatians is absolutely one of the reasons why, because it's so absurd, and yet it it's, it's perfect, because I just love that she has this, like, insane motivation that again is it's not realistic all the Dalmatians are not super friendly dogs all the time but uh, like the just that they like doubled down on on it and just owned it as far as villain motivations go the fact that it's like it's not it's not that they were even traumatized it's like th- their trauma is related to this random thing that they really hate it's just very funny to me for some reason and that is probably the most literal and best version of it. I'm not saying that movie is good, but I have a soft spot for it just because of it, it embraces the absurdity in a way I appreciate.
1: I feel like you have to go one of two routes on a character like Cruella, where you're like, either you're going to just say, like, she's just evil. That's it. Which is really what Once Upon a Time did. Like, they were like, oh, what made you like this? And she's just like, I just like hurting people. It's just all there is to it. <laughs> or acknowledge the absurdity of, like, okay, we're literally trying to build a redemption story for a woman who skins puppies. Uh, let's just lean into that and and go all the way with it.
0: In the notes I see there, there there's just a huge list of Disney movies and cartoons and live action stuff that they brought into the show.
1: How the show connects to Disney, like I alluded to at the beginning there is a direct connection. Uh, They were feeding off of each other to kind of see what people wanted to see. The series had exclusive rights to directly reference the Disney characters, songs, designs, and more, as well as the ability to completely twist those characters. So again, spoiler alert, Peter Pan is a villain in this series, actually one of the show's best villains. Rumpelstiltskin ends up being the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. So we have some major subversions, but we also just have playing with all of the things that are in Disney that we loved so much. Mickey Mouse is never an actual character in the series, although the Sorcerer's Apprentice is a character. He's just not Mickey Mouse. But there are plenty of hidden Mickeys. I actually noticed there's a hidden Minnie in the pilot episode, if you're looking at the background of the fairy tale nursery, there's actually a Minnie Mouse on the bottom of a shelf somewhere. I think Henry has like a Mickey Mouse clock in his bedroom at one point. But if we go to like the direct references, allusions, they reference 34 of Disney's animated films, 16 Disney cartoons, and 17 live action films. So, long story short, basically everything we're going to discuss over the next however many years of this project is at least somewhat referenced. For instance, there is Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi is mentioned, but we don't actually see it. Endless more. Basically, if they are a main figure in Disney, like if it's a Disney princess, they're in there at some point. If it's a very well known movie, It's in there at some point. And then some of the kind of hidden ones also get brought into it. A lot of times what we see is it's the Disney interpretation of long-term stories. Uh, So, for instance, uh, 101 Dalmatians are in there, but we also have Treasure Island, Robin Hood, 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We play with Wizard of Oz, which Disney had returned to Oz. All of these things where they kind of got to play with these pre-existing properties, we see kind of a blend of the original story or stories, Disney's versions, and then whatever they thought would be fun. And a lot of times that meant that characters played multiple roles and you could see a character be multiple different characters. A lot of times the villains were heroes of other stories. For instance, one of my favorite villain characters is the mother of the evil queen. So we really get to see where Regina gets her evil. But she also was the Miller's daughter in Rumpelstiltskin and the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland, as well as a few other little bit roles. We really thought she was going to be Persephone when they played with the underworld. And it just kind of gave the ability to kind of play with and remix these classic stories and Disney of it all in a way that kind of fixed some of Disney's issues. A lot of the sexism is dragged out. Uh, there's some controversy over race with Once Upon a Time, but for the most part, they kind of eliminated Disney's failures and Disney's controversial parts and found ways to really rebuild these stories into the modern era in a way that keeps the magic without all of the dark stuff and the disclaimers that we've been talking about for the last several weeks.
0: It was interesting because the brief glimpse that I got of Maleficent was, you know, not not the super evil Maleficent that I think of from the Sleeping Beauty story in terms of, you know, her, like her clothes looked like, you know, black and green and purple flames. Like she, like her aesthetic was almost closer to Glinda the Good Witch than it was to the way I think of Maleficent.
1: Yeah, I think that they definitely kind of played with different versions, especially for those characters that had so many different things. Maleficent ends up being completely restyled in later seasons based on the success of the Maleficent movie. So you really do get to see them kind of playing with different angles to all of that.
0: I don't know whether we've moved beyond it or not, but it does feel very the the idea of of remix culture. I think like I feel I feel like right now the big thing is multiverses, and it's kind of funny that they sort of got there ahead of that. But like this feels akin to you know like Glee was really big when the show started, so it it, this idea of remix culture I feel like was very much of this very specific point in time when this was coming out too.
1: Yeah, remixes and. Kind of the post 90s meta awareness uh, were really big kind of vibes to this, both of which are things that I find really fascinating, which is probably why I love the show so much. You really do get to see them playing with kind of these classic texts in a way that they can mock them without actively like denigrating the Disney label, which is part of why I think Disney still claims it. Um, I mean, not only is it just Disney owns ABC, but Once Upon a Time had been on Netflix and then they shifted all seven seasons to Disney Plus in September 2020 because they wanted, and you'll see it in the way that Once Upon a Time is labeled on Disney Plus, they wanted to directly make that connection that if you love Disney, here's a way to love it as an adult and as someone in the modern world who can see the failings of the original movies or kind of the areas that we don't like as much as we maybe used to several decades ago.
0: Yeah. And and as a Disney kid, I could absolutely see myself as if this had been on when I was a kid, I could see myself like watching this as a family every week, you know, especially if I was like, you know eight or nine or ten when it started, I could see you know it being like this is a show that we watch as a family and we all you know we all sit on the couch and have snacks and you know it it becomes a family tradition because I don't think there's anything just it being a network show that I presume aired before ten ten o'clock at night. I don't think there's probably anything in there that's you know super objectionable for for young kids maybe stuff that might go over their heads but nothing like it's not it's not it's not it's not hbo
1: (laughs) so that's definitely something for us to talk about when it comes to the reception because that there was this very long lasting claim of the showrunners that this was a family show and i watched the first several seasons with my dad it was a family experience there are massacres like every three episodes, there's a lot of really kind of concerning stuff that has to do with sex that we'll talk about in a little while. So there were definitely some dark sides, some controversy over what counted as appropriate for kids and what didn't. But largely speaking, I think it falls under that same realm of us watching these early Disney movies and going, oh, wow, it just flat out murdered the evil queen and left no question back in the original animated. And yet it was still something we consider appropriate for children to this day.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. And obviously, what whatever family, every family has a different different definition of what they consider appropriate <laughs> to watch together. And it's funny because my mom was more vocally concerned about... Violence, But, like, I, I don't know, it's weird because I, I watched, like, Friends and Seinfeld, you know, with my parents growing up, and it was like, you know, every couple episodes there'd be a scene where I would just, like, not, like, just sort of, oh, I'm just gonna not react to this thing because I, I understand what's going on, but I don't know that they know that I understand what's going on, and I prefer to keep it that way. <laughs> you know, But but generally... Violence, especially like magical violence, or you know, because I mean, network TV even now is still fairly bloodless. Like, I guess I could say like I could watch Law and Order with my parents, but when I was growing up, we wouldn't watch SVU together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> if if that's a if that's a weird and very particular line <laughs> in the sand, because watching I there was just a SVU was going to raise a lot more questions. I guess. Um you know and my my father especially had an aversion to just blood in general um and just so like my mom watched er i don't think my dad ever saw a a single episode of er because that would have been too much for, for him to handle but you know i think like i said every every family is really different but it's hard for me to think of anything that would be like super objectionable i guess uh, mm-hmm. on the show for for most families. Like I said, not with like little, little kids, but with kids you could take to most PG-13 movies.
1: I feel like the blood is a good line to draw. One of the big things that they bring in is that people can take people's hearts, uh, but it's magic. So there's no blood or anything involved. They're not cutting open their chests. And so there's a scene in season two where the characters return to a village to find literally everyone has been massacred. Like they literally these happy fairy tale characters walk into a town and just see piles of bodies. There really isn't any blood on them because it's just magic. So maybe that is kind of the the line we draw. It's okay to massacre everyone as long as there's not any blood showing on the screen. <laughs>
0: You know, without getting too far down a tangent, there there are a lot of people who are like, "Well, bloodless violence is actually worse for kids in the long run because it makes it look like there's really not any consequences." Where at least like, you know, sh- showing the consequences of violence can make it more meaningful. But that's that's neither here nor there. I would personally consider this to fall under uh, fantasy violence, which is kind of its own separate thing. I mean, there's a horse heart in one of these first two episodes that is. Uh, has clearly been very, very lovingly cleaned uh, before uh, the evil queen gets her hands on it to try to kickstart this curse with it.
1: Like I said, they pull out hearts a lot and they they never have blood or anything. They're just these lovely things you can hold in your hand and they glow (laughs) and they're pretty, which is oddly kind of on the line of like Valentine's Day hearts rather than like biological ones. Because it's it's all just, like, an object. There's not, you know, blood and guts and, you know, the way that it squishes. And anyway, uh, that might be a tangent. Uh, <laughs> we're going a little too far down. But I wanted to kind of keep talking about the show and these first few episodes because I think that, you know, like I said, Snow White and her family are such a big deal to this show. And we did recently watched Snow White and talk about kind of how we perceive Snow White and how it kind of defined the Disney princess, but how many things have changed. Um, I have some quotes from the showrunners that I might bring up, but first I'm just kind of curious about how you kind of thought their interpretation of it is compared to kind of what we talked about a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah, like I said, I mean, I... I don't know if the dwarves go on to play bigger roles in this larger story, but I was glad to see them, uh, at least in, in that first episode. And again, I'm glad that it was nice seeing, you know, Snow White's wedding that is sort of, you know, maybe pointed to at the end of her movie, but she just sort of rides off with the prince. And so being able to see the wedding and seeing the dwarves there was good, you know, her, be, her, her being the one to draw the sword on the queen as the queen approaches them is, it, it's one of those things where it's very self-conscious, and it, it's funny because I, I there's so many, so much of it comes down to individual reaction as to whether you want to call that as empowering or pandering. <laughs> I was talking about this because uh, unbeknownst to me, my wife had actually watched at least a few seasons of the show previously and she was like i didn't realize that she she didn't realize i hadn't seen any of it but she is a person where like you know in the avengers movies where all of the all of the women characters uh line up together she rolls her eyes at that while i know other women of various ages who who find that to be a meaningful and empowering image so i can see how that could cut both ways but at the very least i thought it was a nice sort of rebuke to the passive reputation that Snow White at least has from the Disney version. You know, we, we talked about that a bunch on that episode, but it was nice to see them at least making a choice there to sort of acknowledge it. So so that was really cool. And then I just, I like that the show revolves around Snow White. I, because of its place in Disney history, if they're going to embrace the Disney of it all, that makes the most sense. And I think it's also one of the more open-ended stories because you know Cinderella there's not really like a villain to set up you know Sleeping Beauty is more closed-ended because at the end of the story she's awake and melissa has been vanquished and it's you know and and while yes they obviously did kill the evil queen in in the Disney version i just feel like there's there's so much more to that world that we don't know that's just sort of hinted at and there's other characters that could be brought in like the Huntsman in theory and, you know, and then just populating this with the fairy tale world. Cause like I said, I I enjoyed the the fables comic as much of it as I read. And so it's a concept that I like and I enjoy fairy tales in general, you know? And I think if anything, being in my teens and twenties was all about like cool sci-fi stuff and, you know, like cyberpunk and, and being really into, into those kinds of things. And if anything, my 30s has been me de- digging deeper into mythology and fairy tales. And so it, it definitely speaks to that part of me that has always enjoyed these kinds of stories.
1: You know, it, it builds on the, the folk stories and the fairy tales that we already know, but it also makes its own lore for us to explore deeper. I, I just really quickly wanted to go back to your idea of empowering versus pandering. Uh, because I think that is such an important discussion about female characters. Um, because I'm, I'm the kind of person that I watch, you know, badass female characters and find them amazing. And that's really cool. But if that is what a good woman is, and anyone who doesn't do that is like a pathetic, pathetic, you know, hysterical wreck, obviously that dives into its own form of sexism. I think that one of the kind of cool angles that the show gets to play with they really explore in season two is that these characters have dual identities so snow white is also mary margaret blanchard and mary margaret is much more kind of the mild-mannered passive character that we think of with snow white whereas snow white in the enchanted forest is about badass and she is know she got cast out of her home so she decided that she's going to become a thief or a bandit or whatever else she needs to to survive and so because we have both angles of that we get to see a more authentic female character where she is stronger than her reputation but she is allowed to be sensitive and she is allowed to you know sob about the fact that her daughter is being taken away from her and so i think that the show does generally find a good balance between those angles and one of the best ways that it does that is that this is really a female dominated show there are male characters that are important henry is extremely important charming will become more important Temple Stiltskin is supremely important, but we see Snow White and Emma and the Evil Queen and a little bit later Belle from Beauty and the Beast is a pretty significant character and we get the Wicked Witch of the West. And those are kind of the main female characters and they all approach these things differently. So while all of them have moments where they fit the like strong female character archetype, they all do it differently which I think is such an important kind of answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Because it's not saying that women have to be one way or the other. It's saying that all of these versions of femininity are worthy of attention, which is something that I think Disney, as an animated company, is still kind of struggling to figure out. Women can be different, and both versions can be powerful. Whereas they kind of tend to go through, like, an archetype of the princess, Uh, especially, like, the the Renaissance era and then the most (laughs) recent era. You know, as much as I like many of the movies, kind of all the women in the Renaissance era are the same. They're a little bit rebellious, but ultimately in love. And, you know, the more recent ones are super independent and don't need a man and that kind of angle um we don't see much variation within each period and i think this show actually does a pretty good job with that
0: yeah and i think taking advantage of one being a tv show where there's obviously a lot more time to spend with these characters and being able to to establish different angles to them and also You know, being the kind of show that can bring in all of these different characters from different sources and allow them to sort of bounce off each other and needing to define them in different ways just to make a good television show certainly works to its advantage.
1: It generally works because it treats women like characters instead of (laughs) like women, Um, which is a sad line to have to be saying in 2023 and yet very much Still relevant to the television and film industry. For sure. One more kind of thing that I noticed that was kind of interesting about kind of comparing Once Upon a Time's version to Snow White and to the Disney formula that we've been discussing and how it's been built is the kind of centrality of the kind of the frame story storybook. I mean, with the Disney movies, we had so many of them starting with we have opening a book and then the text and then a picture and then go into it. And, you know, the pilot episode starts with text on a screen. And then we get flashbacks and the real world connected by this storybook as the lens between those two realms. Uh, And I think it's just kind of a really cool way to honor that Disney formula while also being able to play around with it a little bit more. And they deal in later seasons with the idea of who gets to write the stories and what happens if someone with a different perspective takes these classic stories and wants to turn them on their heads. So I think it just kind of plays with that classic storybook opening and frame story that was Really building in those first few movies.
0: Yeah. And I think without doing this podcast and watching those movies in quick succession, I don't know that I would have realized that that was a reference only because that kind of opening is, is like so iconic that I don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I definitely appreciated that nod. And again, I, I think it is that mix of love it, lo- you know, sort of loving tribute, but also playfulness.
1: And I think just in general, they, dealt with the problematic parts by erasing them which is was very much in that era considered to be the correct route uh nowadays we have kind of an idea that you should illuminate some of the problematic elements instead of ignoring them but, you know snow white and prince charming aren't just kissing at random in the woods we start to see that they had a relationship beforehand we see the change of ages that snow and charming are more or less the same ages. He fixed a lot of the kind of deeply uncomfortable societal issues by just not doing them. You know, grumpy can be a jerk without, a playful jerk, uh, without having to be a raging sexist and misogynist, which I think is one of those things that we've discussed should be done if we're going to kind of reboot these things that you need to account for your failures and kind of fix them. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, it does kind of try to fix some of those errors from the earlier movies.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've sort of been just mentally tracking through these live action remakes, and I think there's a, at least a step in the right direction here with casting Juan Carlos Esposito as the magic mirror. Um, which I also just thought that was a really fun choice for him to be writing the newspaper run, running the newspaper in the town is is diverse casting. And you know, I hope that that's something that sort of gets better as the show goes along in terms of making choices that, you know, obviously in all of these classic Disney movies, all the characters are white. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to see that that's that's something that's now changing in the at least changing in the live action remakes of we're going to do diverse casting you know it, it's something that they started with the Cinderella one where they you know we're in a you know medieval renaissance time period but there are people of color kind of throughout and and they've kind of continued that and now with Little Mermaid they're bringing that to sort of the main characters and I don't know if the show gets quite to that point but I, I hope that I like that they were at least seem to be thinking about that as they were putting this together even though the main cast is still very very white
1: I think that you see that more in some of the later seasons, but our main struggle was that the most interesting uh, characters after the first season are the villains, pretty universally. And so they either had the option of kind of introducing diverse casting to their villains, which is what they did a lot of, or... Sticking it with the heroes who are relatively boring characters. So, the show got some criticism for the fact that the vast majority of their non white characters are villains. Specifically, uh, we have Lana Paria, who is a Latina woman, as the Evil Queen. But then the reverse argument is that the Evil Queen is probably the most nuanced, engaging character in the show, particularly as it goes forward. So I think that that was something they were aware of. They were stuck in kind of the catch-22 that they struggled with in their early eras of introducing Latinx characters in animation to, do I want to introduce Latino characters that are boring or that are foolish, and is that stereotyping or is that just kind of representation? And that's a line that I think they still struggle with. And the, the biggest thing always comes down to if there were 15 you know, Latino characters in a show, like there are often 15 white characters in a show, it wouldn't matter if some of them were villains. But When all of the heroes are white and all of the villains are non-white, you've got some problematic uh, <laughs> yep. casting there. So I definitely think that was something that we were thinking about a lot, especially later on, but still didn't really do maybe as perfectly as we would hope all of these years later.
0: Yeah. And again, that's, you know, that's a critique I could make of probably any show from many eras uh, and up until up into the present. So it, it's not something I would necessarily ding the show for. But like I said, even just seeing Juan Carlos Pazito you know, and and the evil queen, like just that helps signify that at least hopefully they were they were actively thinking about it and being aware of the choices that they're making. Because that's to me that that's almost half of it right there, especially when you, you know, go back even 10 years.
1: I think that this show did a very good job with gender. It did a decent job, or at least on par with shows at its decade, uh, when it came to race, although there were problems it's big kind of issue as we turn to the point where we would normally talk about reception and legacy was especially with sexuality because classic fairy tales and especially disney fairy tales are so heteronormative uh and the show kind of went down that same alley but before i go too far into that just to back up a tiny bit The reception has been positive, but not overwhelming. Rotten Tomatoes, both the critical and audience scores are 78%, and IMDb is 7.7 out of 10. So passing, but not with necessarily super flying colors. It was nominated for a total of 91 awards, which is very impressive, but it only won 12 Uh, So I think we kind of see repeatedly this like, it's doing something great, but is it the best at what it's doing? Maybe not. Uh, The vast majority of their nominations were for casting and costume design, set design, kind of that world building that we've talked about before. Uh, A lot of people will argue that Once Upon a Time did a significantly better job making realistic versions of Disney costumes than the Disney parks or the official Disney live-action remakes, which I will stand by. I think that you see a lot of the kind of air of the original costume without looking like a cheesy costume. For instance, they got seven nominations for the Creative Arts Emmys, they got 12 for People's Choice Awards, Lana Perea won the most individual awards uh, with four and was very well loved for her role as Regina and the Evil Queen, uh, which just really, you see that a couple of the actors really got massive fan bases from this show. And we see that there were people who just flocked to the show, uh, but it maybe didn't always have perfect uh, ratings. Generally positive reviews about its feminist portrayals, but oddly, there was a lot of female perpetrated sexual assault in the show. Evil Queen has the ability to control people, and a few of the people that she is controlling she is regularly having sex with. Uh, there are two female characters who use magic to pretend to be other people and have sex with male characters, which is a historically condemned trope in male magic users and yet somehow they did the opposite again with sexuality there was a lot of frustration regarding queer baiting which is a very complicated subject with the kind of neglect and even mockery of the showrunners towards the popular uh, sapphic relationship swan queen which is the evil queen and emma swan Which gets even more complicated when you think about the fact that she's technically her grandmother. But that's neither here nor there. Showrunners frequently claimed that they couldn't introduce LGBT characters, especially as the leads, because it was a family show. Which became a line that uh, much of the fandom resented. Uh, They tried to fix that problem with a one-off episode with newly introduced characters that were never seen again, where they gave them the perfect happily ever after, but they weren't real characters. They were a, you know, get off our back and leave us alone about this issue. Thankfully, that was handled a little bit better with a female relationship in the final season that was pretty well handled, but it got to the point where essentially Between the fans, other parts of the fandom, and the showrunners, there ended up being kind of a lot of hostility about what relationships should happen, uh, which I suppose is somewhat natural when the Disney movies had clear relationships that we could get used to, see that if those were changed, people would get mad, versus kind of the, the rise of Tumblr fandom around this same period. But there was, unfortunately, a lot of kind of downsides to that, while the show was coming out particularly, that led to harassment of the cast and crew, as well as fellow fans, particularly among the top three ships, two of which were canon, one was not. There was Swan Queen, which is still the most popular relationship on Archive of Our Own, but was not in the show. Captain Swan, which happened once they introduced Captain Hook to the show. And then Rumbel, uh, which was pretty universally beloved until it got extremely toxic as a relationship. Uh, as Rumpelstiltskin just repeatedly uh, took advantage of Belle, who is one of the most beloved Disney princesses. So by and large, the show got positive reviews, but it definitely had kind of some of the downsides and, and frustration that we still talk about with all of these things from decades ago, which is kind of unfortunate.
0: Having a really active, really passionate fan base can be a, a double-edged sword. Um, you know, being, being being a Star Wars fan, uh, I have a lot of experience with that as it relates to ships and, and other things. So Uh, I can certainly appreciate that, like, on the one hand, the fact that people care so much is a sign that the show is connecting with people. On the other hand, uh, it can be a real problem when things get a little out of control. uh, And the fandom becomes, uh, again, the internet making the creators and, uh, you know, people on the show more available is has not been a net positive uh, in a lot of ways. But, you know, even in... Like I said, these first two episodes, I I can sort of see why people would ship that. I wasn't even going to ask about how those characters are actually related to her to, to each other or how the ages work, because the frozen in time for 28 years thing was like not. Fully explain like I I didn't quite fully get it from the two episodes that I watched, so I, I I had a lot of questions around how how that was all working. So I I can see how it gets convoluted very very quickly, but you know in, in general I, it it is interesting to see to see progress and 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 again we're still struggling with there are obviously a large swath of people who you know don't think that LGBT relationships are appropriate for all ages which is a ridiculous opinion honestly but it's we haven't really moved much past where the show was unfortunately in the you know decade or half decade since
1: as much as the one-off episode was absolutely pandering in a way that backfired terrifically uh one of the great things it did was that one-off episode mirrored the pilot in a lot of ways so that you saw these two female characters getting the snow and charming treatment so whenever people wanted to say oh well you brought in something that is inherently sexual uh because lgbt relationships are often sexualized you can literally put side by side one clip and the pilot and say that it's literally the same level Uh, And that was actually very helpful for external sources. I don't know that the showrunners intended to do that, but it was a good way to kind of argue against the idea that LGBT relationships are inherently more sexual than uh, heterosexual pairings.
0: Yeah, yeah, that. That definitely makes sense, and I, I did notice, you know, as as we move into sort of the the legacy of the show, when as as when I put in my search on Disney Plus for it, the Once Upon a Time in Wonderland came up, and I was like, okay, I guess that is a related related thing.
1: Unfortunately, it was not very successful, largely because of timing. This was still in the period where if a show was not coming out in the prime time area, it tended to not get very good views. I'd like to think that streaming services have kind of broken that uh, a little bit. This show actually has a remarkable legacy, despite the fact that it's only about a little over 10 years old. Uh, there were four spin spin-off books. There was Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, which came out kind of, I think, during the fourth season of the original show and was kind of a cool way of playing with multiverses and... Universe hopping all the way back then. There were two comic book spinoffs, and then obviously now there's kind of a revival on TikTok of bringing out these spinoffs and saying, like, oh, why didn't we get to explore more? Some of the books explored, you know, the evil queen's childhood, some of Little Red Riding Hood's story, and other than timing, I suppose the big downfall of Once Upon a Time in Wonderland was that. Basically, none of the characters were from the original show. It just kind of had a show in Wonderland, and it just happened to be the same Wonderland. And there were only about two or three characters that really crossed over, which unfortunately made it hard for the core fans to to latch on too much.
0: Yeah, I feel like that kind of spinoff. You need the you you have to like port at least one or two of the really really popular characters over. Or the brand has to be so strong that people are just gonna watch whatever <laughs> is put out and you know, bef- before it needs to prove itself, it has to get people to watch. And, you know, this this feels like the a show that sort of again, like walks that line between cult show and really popular show. Like it it, it seems to be right on right on the middle where there's obviously a lot of people that watched it and then there's like a hardcore fan base. But it, it's it's hard to make a spin off from that kind of that kind of show. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that they uh, saw the success of kind of the Vampire Diaries and its many spin-offs, spinoffs, um, some of which had happened at this point, some of which hadn't, um, and they thought that people were invested enough in the world. Wonderland is not overly explored in the original show. Uh, it probably would have been better if they had done Oz, for instance, because they had an entire... S- well, they had half a season revolving around the Wicked Witch and we see Glinda and we see all of these characters that we could have kind of followed. Oz or Neverland were introduced in season three and had pretty good worlds that could have been jumped on. But yeah, it, it was just on that line where the fan base was strong, but they, they maybe weren't ready to jump full force into another show.
0: When the new Snow White movie comes out, we'll have to we'll definitely have to track to see if there are any references specific to Once Upon a Time. You know, it, it's funny that we're finally getting the Disney Snow White animated or live action remake, I should say. Because I feel like also around this time, again, I mentioned Snow White and the Huntsman earlier, and there was also what was it Mirror Mirror, the one with Julia Roberts as as the evil queen. I think all came out within a year or two of each other cuz i think those are also both like 2010 2011 movies. So i think if anything it it'll be interesting to see if there's a, you know, a, a lot of nostal- a sort of nostalgia wave for 2010s <laughs> snow snow white stuff including this when that hits next year.
1: Now that the 90s are super old and vintage, which is horrifying and painful to say, The 2010s are just old enough that they are kind of starting to get some of that nostalgia. I haven't seen direct connections, but I know that there's certainly some discussion of the fact that, you know, we had a very powerful Latina fairy tale character in the Evil Queen in Once Upon a Time, and we are now in the 2024 uh, live action going to have a Latina Snow White specifically through Rachel Zegler. And so we kind of see some of that, uh, where we're getting to see some of that expansion of diversity. But unfortunately, the promotional materials have kind of all leaned on like, yeah, this is an old character and she was passive and boring and horrible, you know, female presentation. And we need to change that because nobody else has done that. And we seem to be forgetting that Once Upon a Time did A pretty good job of showing Snow White not be super passive and you know just existing for a man in this Disney ordained at least series so it'll be uh definitely interesting to see how those two kind of clash against each other since it seems like the live action is trying to in some ways erase what Once Upon a Time did
0: yeah or or at least you know Beth, that people don't remember it, which, you know, as, as you've shown is, is maybe not the case. So we'll see. We'll see what happens when we get, uh, when we get closer.
1: We've talked about the show, we've talked about its, you know, contemporary reception, its legacy, a little bit of a change of format from our normal style. But I guess I have one kind of big question to finish off this special episode. Uh, And that is how did watching this show, if at all, uh, impact your thoughts about Disney and its legacy because this show is inherently built off of Disney and its legacy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's another piece of the puzzle more than it changed anything. So, you know, um I think it it, it sort of feels like you go from being the kind of kid who's into like the Disney princess branding and, you know, that, that line where everything is about the princesses and sort of, you know, seeing them all together and, you know, maybe you have a favorite one that you're really, really into. And then sort of, you know, then you sort of graduate into things like Once Upon a Time and The Descendants, which I really don't know much about other than the fact that it exists. And I know there's like a line of YA novels that are sort of retellings of some of the classic Disney movies, especially from the villain's perspective. And I think that push pull between loving the princesses and loving the villains, I think is something that Disney keeps playing with and keeps trying to figure out how to walk that line. And, it, you know, it sometimes it feels like I said, sometimes it feels like the princesses are for younger kids and then the villains are for tweens and teens. And then this show is sort of trying to wrap all of that together and play off the familiarity and nostalgia, and then also sort of, you know, telling its its own story in a way. So I don't know if it, it changes my perception of the older stuff, per se, because I'm so much more familiar with that than this, and I've only seen the first two episodes of this, but it does, it does certainly add to my understanding of the way that Disney thinks about their legacy especially in recent years and how they present that legacy back to us because if they're good if Disney's good at anything it really is sort of mining their own legacy and and repackaging it and getting us invested all over again you know and you know, I'm sure there are people out there who watched this show and then got really into the, maybe not the older movies themselves, but the characters and, you know, I, I could imagine somebody being like, oh, I'm gonna, I love, I can imagine somebody being really into Once Upon a Time and then buying like a Snow White lounge fly backpack, you know, because they're associated with the, they, they, they love Snow White as a character more because they watched this show than they would have if the show hadn't existed.
1: I'm gonna show my academic side really quickly. There is an amazing book, and I just need to see if I can find the name of it really quickly. The Story of Myth by Sarah Isles Johnston. I read it in one of my religion classes, and it never leaves my mind. And it essentially talked about the fact that in Greek mythology, they were able to have these myths contradicted each other. Some of them mocked each other. Some of them argued with each other. But they were able to build the characters into this rich world that felt real. And I think that this show, for me, is Disney doing that to literally mythologize their own characters. Technically, these characters existed beforehand, but so much of American culture is reliant on Disney's perceptions by introducing this kind of counter... Narrative that also promotes these original ones, you know, you can find a new love for the originals and you can find more depth in the originals. And the things you don't like, that's okay because the show mocks them too. But they built a stronger world in which these stories and these characters have something beyond the ordinary human they have some kind of magic of their own really no other company except maybe marvel has been able to really capture that well and i think that this show just does a really good job kind of bringing the disney world to a new generation and building it that much stronger
0: you know and i think being a you know a a comic book fan and a, a superhero fan and you know there's multiple versions of these characters can exist in your head all at the same time and you know there doesn't have to be one definitive version of any of them and i think that's it's actually more interesting to to have different different takes on things you know like some of my favorite you know batman or superman stories are sort of alternate universe stories where like you know, one of the more famous ones is Superman Red Sun, where it's like, what if Superman's rocket had landed in the Soviet Union instead of the United States? And, like, those are... It, it's fun to, to take those familiar characters and, like we said, remix them or, you know, do an alternate take on them because it allows you to explore that character in a different way or build a new, richer version of that character. And it doesn't necessarily have to replace the older version, but it can stand alongside it. And I think that's why i can imagine that the rest of once upon a time would be a more rewarding viewing experience than any of these disney live action remakes which just kind of go through the motions of the original story and they tweak the le- they they tweak them in the least interesting way possible where i think having the freedom here to sort of pick and choose and reassemble and throw together different characters from different Disney movies and fables and fairy tales, you know, allows for just a more interesting, just more interesting storytelling.
1: You know, I think it's obvious at this point that I, of this show, I'm very aware of its flaws, but I I think that it did so many good things. But I also have my cynical side that says, Disney knew what they were doing. The showrunners of this show and their partners with Disney knew exactly what they were doing. They knew... That they were building upon their properties. This is absolutely another kind of brick in the mortar of Disney establishing its foundation and its importance to American pop culture. And maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe the cultural monopoly of Disney is a problem. And the fact that this show was able to expand from Disney princesses to, you know, all of Victorian literature and also maybe any book, uh, which is kind of suggested at the end that literally all stories belong to Disney, you know, maybe that's not a good thing. But at least in this instance, I think it was um, enjoyable, uh, if nothing else.
0: Yeah. And, and at the very least, I'm very glad that you you shared this with me. Because, again, so many of these very classic movies, I'm very familiar with from growing up and my general interest in Disney. And so, you know, as you mentioned, uh, at the top of the show, sort of flipping the script on that. And, you know, you being the expert on this and and kind of sharing it with me was also just a really fun and enjoyable experience, at least for me, I hope it was for our our listeners also, but it definitely was for me. So
1: (laughs) yeah, I hope that this has been uh, a fun opportunity to kind of apply what we have been teaching. (laughs) And just kind of play with things play with Classic Disney, play with the format of our podcast. I'm really excited that we've been able to do this as kind of the cap to our first season of the first five features or kind of eight, you know, depending. <laughs> and I think that this has just been a really fun way to, you know, keep the momentum going and acknowledge that as much as Disney is these know original films they're also all of the paratexts that they have built off of them absolutely so with that i think that we are about ready to wrap up so thank you guys again for checking in and watching our first season watching or i say watching because we're watching tv and movies thank you for (laughs) listening to our podcast so far and I'm looking forward to us exploring our next section on war and packages and how Disney was changed and endured and all of that as World War II and the strike really made their impact on the company and changed really its trajectory for the next decade. Until we get to that point, in the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Dream Mind Heart, and on Instagram at And Heart. But please always remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thank you so much to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.